0: Hey everybody, Larry Powell here. Welcome to Studio HFL. I'm your host, of course, and I'm glad you've chosen to spend some time with me tuning in to today's show. This interview today is from a live event that I did with Ricky Riccardi, not Ricky Riccardo of Lucy fame and history, but Ricky Riccardi. And this interview is from January 12th, 2021 on a Facebook live event. Ricky is an expert on Louis Armstrong, has written two best-selling books on uh, Satchmo himself, and I I had already interviewed him once in 2020, back in June, I believe it was. And uh, of course, this interview is part of the Industry Pro Showcase that I put together for this week, and I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Ricky. Now, uh, about halfway, about 30 minutes into this interview, uh, Doc Severinsen comes on. I had invited him to be a special guest and a surprise guest, and I'm not sure if you're going to be able to hear the surprise in Ricky's voice during this, but if you see the video, you're going to see uh, Ricky had no idea what was going to happen. So Doc came on and spent the next 30 or 40 minutes with us, and what a treat that was. Anytime we can get Doc uh, to talk, well, it's, it's easy to get Doc to talk. It's harder to get him uh, to stop talking, but nobody uh, is going to want that. So anyways, uh, the full version, the video version of this interview is available on the Studio HFL YouTube channel. And if you make your way there, you can subscribe to the channel while you're there. I'd appreciate it. And as far as uh, other social media platforms, if you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a star rating and a review, I would appreciate that. And of course, uh, yes, uh, social media. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Studio HFL. Uh, StudioHFL.com is where you need to go if you want to sign up for the newsletter, check out the merchandise, uh, the blog, and some other good information on there. And of course to sign up for the newsletter you can do that there. And of course if it were not for Patreon and my patrons, my subscribers there, uh, producing this podcast would be much more of a challenge. So for those who are, are subscribers or current patrons through Patreon, thank you for your support. And if you would like to find out more about how to become a Patreon patron, you can go to patreon.com studiohfl and there are four tiers of support from which you can choose, each with uh, benefits, increasing benefits, of course, for each tier. And uh, of course, it doesn't matter what tier you subscribe to, everything contributes wonderfully. this and every amount is greatly appreciated again patreon.com studio hfl and of course through patreon i also have my sponsors for this show and here's a word about that so i'm going to start with messina covers and of course a custom case company out of louisville kentucky with erica howard and david messina And brass players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other musicians. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to a wide variety of color schemes. Don't forget about mouthpiece pouches or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at messinacovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company or Eastman Wins. And S.E. Shires offers a complete line of brass instruments from the beginner all the way up to the professional model. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when Doc Severinson himself helped design Eastman's beginner model trumpet. You can find out more at EastmanWinds.com and seshires.com. And, of course, Picket Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any of the Picket mouthpieces or Blackburn trumpets, you need to make an opportunity uh, for that to happen. Of course, uh, they're doing everything virtually these days, but you can get in touch with Eric Mureen uh, through PickettBlackburn.com. Thanks again to all my sponsors for your support of this show. It's greatly appreciated. So now we're going to get to Ricky's interview and, of course, our surprise guest, Doc in about 30 minutes in. And without any further ado, here we go. And I want to say thank you again to Trent Austin for a really terrific session last night. Uh, you know, I planned about an hour and I had this whole list of questions. But, of course, like most interviews, uh, any question that I was going to ask would have been, uh, the answers would have been, worth
1: welcome. Great to be here. Yeah, uh, right, under the wire. <laughs> so, well, you know,
0: uh, I was going to say rehearsal uh, went perfectly, right? I mean, we we, <laughs> we met for an hour before and, and talked through this and uh, everything went beautifully. Um, <laughs> no. And, and this is great. You know, if, if it was somebody I didn't know and I was trying to do this, uh, I, I might be a little shaken, <laughs> right? Trying to figure this out. But, um, yeah. So, you know, I was looking up when. Uh, when I interviewed you, that was all the way back June 29th.
1: I mean, this the time is flying. It's it's yeah. weird because we're all in lockdown and you know the pandemic and everyone's staying home. But uh, it's been the fastest year of my life. It's really strange.
0: Well, I mean, you've had a lot going on, obviously, and and we're going to talk about that. Um, but you know, uh, as I was, uh, of course, I'm. Well, I'll do a quick promo here. Here's uh, here's uh, there's the first book, right? You see that with that, the glare. And, uh, as I was kind of just thumbing through, the uh, the one you sent me just recently that your most recent book, um, <laughs> I, I told my wife, I said, you know, having already talked to Ricky, I'm now reading this in his voice, you know, <laughs> which is kind of cool, right? Because, you know, you're sitting there and, uh, it, if you don't have any, any frame of reference, right. You kind of use your own imagination. You create the voice of all the characters you create the, the, the narrative yourself. But now I have this baseline, right. So your voice is now the baseline. So when I read that book, it, it's, but that's great, right. Cause I know the pacing, I know the phrasing and I, the, I mean, and I can't put that, that East coast inflection on it myself. <laughs> so.
1: Thank you. No, that's, that's a good thing. And when, when I, when I submitted my main, the script to my editor at Oxford University Press, you know you hold your breath, you hope it's not a, a, a total disaster or a bomb. And her first reaction she was very she was so pleased with it, but she said it felt like you were in a room just telling these stories and i said that's the goal you know that's yeah. that's my yeah. my whole style that's where it comes from so that's a that's a big compliment so thank you larry
0: oh absolutely and you know it makes me you told me of course about all these lectures that you do and i'm thinking man i'd love to be a part of those somewhere along the <laughs> way because well first of all i mean once you get rolling it's like you don't have to pause for notes you don't and, and of course you'd said how many times you had done that sort of thing but uh, yeah i well, I would like to. I think we actually talked about that. I'm remembering now. I said, "Man, if I could ever get you out to Indianapolis, you know, to do uh, to do something on Louis Armstrong, uh, that may be a possibility in the in the in the future." But um, so, yeah. So our introduction to each other really was the interview, and yep. of course, uh, how long after June that June 29th interview? How long did it take before that second book? Uh, was dropped if that's the right term,
1: sure. Uh, the official publication date was September first, but it it started showing up in the middle of August. That was the yeah mm-hmm. th- that day the first box shows up unexpectedly. That's like a, a national holiday
0: <laughs> uh, well, and you you know what's in there, right? but does it still feel like you're opening a Christmas presents?
1: Oh, yeah. No, it was just me and my nine-year-old daughter, Melody. We were the only two people in the house, and I threw my phone at her. I'm like, you know, start taking pictures, start filming, do something. You know, they, <laughs> this doesn't happen every day, so uh, right. I have it all documented. It's a big moment.
0: Yeah. Was it the same kind of feeling as that first book?
1: Uh, yes, totally. Um, Though there was a slight difference with the first book, because the same daughter I just mentioned, um, Melody, was born the day before that book came out, <laughs> so that was that was something else. Because that was like going through two births at the same time. I was wow. Wow. I was at the hospital on May thirty first and I got the the call that the books were in, and then June first I got to to see uh, that book, you know, over at the Pantheon offices in New York. So that was. That was a trip. <laughs> Two births well, for the price of one. And
0: hopefully you took more pictures of your newborn daughter than you did of that first book. I did. Right?
2: I did. <laughs>
1: yes, I can I can vouch for that. Um,
0: so, you know, I I know you of course as I call you the the Lewis Armstrong expert and, and author. I mean, that's that's really the the moniker that I've given you is is you would be the go-to guy if somebody had a question about Lewis it's like, well, and not just because of the books, but I also want to mention that you are the curator, is that right, of the Louis Armstrong House?
1: Yeah, the official title is uh, Director of Research Collections, which is a fancy way of saying archivist, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of the archives.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, how long you've been a part of that, and maybe how you got involved with sure. the Louis Armstrong House.
1: Yeah, no, that that's a story. I'll I'll try not to eat up the whole time. Um but just just to wind the clock all the way backwards, I I got my masters in jazz history and research from from Rutgers University Newark in 2005. And that was I graduated in May of 05. I had a 350-page master's thesis that became the foundation for my next book. Uh, I got married in June 2005 and I said, "Look at world, here I come." And um, I said, well, the only job I've ever had, uh, my summer job was always helping my father out. He was a painting contractor in Tom's River, New Jersey. So I said, I'll help the old man out. I'll paint some houses. And uh, long story short, I was a full-time house painter with a master's degree for four years. (laughs) But it was during those four years that I started my Armstrong blog. I started doing small lectures and I started visiting the Louis Armstrong archives just as a researcher. I knew I wanted to write this book, and uh, the blog was getting me a reputation. But the very first time I went to the Armstrong Archives, I met the uh, founding director, Michael Cogswell. And uh, actually, I went there with my wife the first time. And when I walked out, I said, "I need to work there. You know, whatever whatever happens, I need to end up there." And so four years go by, two thousand nine. I'm still painting houses, but now I have a book deal. You know, it was a weird time, really weird time. Um, but Michael. Uh, Cogswell, he contacted me and said, "Listen, we just got a two-year grant to hire an archivist to process the Jack Bradley collection." Now, the Jack Bradley collection is the world's largest private collection for all things Armstrong, and uh, I knew Jack. I'd interviewed him for the book, and so I <laughs> filled out my application. My first reference was Jack Bradley, <laughs> which was shrewd, um, and so they called me in for the interview. Great. And so the first half of the interview were all jazz questions, or Armstrong questions. They knew me. I said, well this is a cakewalk. But to be an archivist, you know, you should actually have archival training, which I did not. I had a bachelor's in journalism, and uh, like I said a master's in jazz history. So the second half of the interview were all archives related questions. I'll never forget. What are the pitfalls of retrospective conversion? And, you know, I went into my Ralph Cramden, you know, I'm an, I'm an, it was, it was looking bleak. And so I came home and told my wife, I said, I don't know, is this, that, it was, it was on, it was going well and I lost it. But they called me in for the in-person interview and they took me into the stacks and they said, here is the, the unprocessed Jack Bradley collection. You know, Jack was Lewis's personal photographer the last 12 years of his life. Uh, you'll be working with negatives and contact sheets like this. And Michael reached into a box and pulled out a contact sheet and held it up. And like a robot, I looked at it and said, Oh, that's a Mercury recording session from the, you know, from the mid sixties. And he's like, how do you know? And I said, Well, there's Big Chief Moore on trombone, there's Eddie Shue on clarinet. Uh, that version of the All Stars was only together for six months. In that six months, they had two recording sessions for Mercury in September and November. Uh, it's got to be one of those dates because they're clearly in a recording studio. And about two hours later, they called me and said, I got the job. <laughs> so it's been um, 12 and a half years, about. And um, I can't envision, I don't think I'm qualified to do anything else. So it's, it's a, it's a match made in wow.
0: heaven. You're going through that story and I'm thinking it's like, uh, maybe the correct title is an Armstrong savant,
1: right? Well, I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always give Michael the credit because Michael would always say that, you know, uh, he could have hired somebody with you know, heavy-duty library chops and taught them the basics of Armstrong. But, you know, you say, you know what, let's let's get the Armstrong expert in there and teach him the basics of cataloging. And I've been fortunate that I've worked, you know, we've been able to hire trained archivists and archival assistants. And I've worked with great people over the years who've kind of propped me up when uh, when my skill set runs a little dry. But, you know, in terms of identifying photos and answering reference questions and all that stuff, it's it's a dream every day.
0: Would you share, and I think it's a a cool thing to experience uh, you telling this, was when people visit this Armstrong house, the reactions that, that you witness, could you share
1: one of those? Sure. I mean, one of the most common reactions, it almost sounds overdramatic, but we've all seen everybody's work there, tears. You know, people make that pilgrimage, uh, especially international visitors. It's a real big tourist destination. People who land at LaGuardia Airport, get in a cab, and the first stop is the Louis Armstrong House Museum, and they're coming from... Australia, they're coming from England, they're coming from Japan and to see people walk through that door and put down their luggage and either start weeping because they hear the music and sometimes it takes a little while. Sometimes people will come, they you know, they might be Armstrong fans. Oh, this is cute, you know, it's it's his house, but um we get them eventually because when you take the tour, everything is 100% original. No one has lived there <laughs> since lewis and Lucille Armstrong passed away. But on top of that, we play audio we have audio from Louis Armstrong's private tapes and, you know, we don't really build up to it. It's like the docent will be telling you a story and then he reaches over and pushes a button and you hear Louis Armstrong's voice coming out of the speakers in the room you're standing in. And that's when people, you know, they, they really feel it. And so, you know, we're very proud of the program there. We've been closed since obviously the middle of March, but we have big, big plans for uh, for the the end of this year and the future. So, we hope to always be the number one destination for for armstrong nuts everywhere.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to have to make my uh, my pilgrimage, as it were. You know, when when the time comes, and uh, well, not just this collection uh, that you're talking about, but. And uh, being able to visit the rooms in the house, but you're also talking instruments that are available to to see, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. No. We have seven trumpets overall. Um, one is on display at the house, and that was a Selmer that given to Lewis by King George V of England in 1934. And then we have a Selmer on display at the archives, which is. I think it's his favorite one because we contacted Selmer and it was definitely manufactured November 52. Lewis was in Paris November 52. But it is the horn he's holding in all those iconic shots of him on the front steps of his home with all the neighborhood Queens children surrounding him. Which is, was taken 18 years later, so we think that was probably his go-to. Uh, but we have five others, and um, you know we don't advertise this, but he, here I am talking about it on social media. But yeah, trumpet players of a, uh, a certain professionalism, we could say, you know, uh, we invite them to come to the archives. We invite them to bring their mouthpiece, and uh, we like to keep the horns percolating, as as Lewis would say, you know. And mm-hmm. and again, just like the house, I've seen. Adults just break into tears, just holding the trumpets. It's a, it's an emotional experience. It's emotional for me. I've been doing it for twelve years now. Just getting that combination to the safe, and knowing that you know I'm the one who has to open it. Uh, that's a part of the job I'll never take for granted.
0: So, is the combination to that safe? Does it have anything to do with his birthday? Or, I mean, are you? Is the Social Security number? I mean, how? Are, You don't have to give it away right here.
1: I got to keep some secrets. I got to keep some secrets. (laughs) Uh,
0: You know, I I think about, uh, thank goodness for people like you who take the time and the care to to do what you do because there's so many things, you know, I mean, so many, well, every job is important, right? I mean, truly. But we need all these jobs. We need people who are going to, do what you do, because otherwise it's going to get lost in a basement or an attic or, you know, if it's any kind of a certain film, right, doesn't it disintegrate over time? I mean, sure. you are people that are that are being able to take and care for and make sure that this stuff lives on.
1: Yeah. Now, the fact that we're here today—I mean, you know, th- this is not my baby. I, I always call myself just the, the delivery boy. You know, I'm, I'm one step in the chain, but you could not have planned it any better because Lewis and Lucille Armstrong, uh, neither—yeah—they didn't have children. So uh, that's part one. Because you know, I don't—I don't, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but you know, you, you hear stories of once the children, you know, selling instruments, selling stuff, you know, not knowing what it is. Lewis passed away, Lucille saved everything, Lucille passed away, and the Lewis Lewis Armstrong Educational Foundation, that's the Armstrong estate, they made sure everything was was taken care of. So Lucille left the home to the city of New York, the city of New York said someone needs to oversee this, and they chose Queens College, because Queens College had an incredible jazz program at the time, with Jimmy Heath and Sir Roland Hannah, Donald Byrd, and they were nearby, and they had a beautiful new library that had a whole suite that was just waiting for this. So that's like fortunate num- sign number one. You know, the archives will be taken care of. Fortunate sign number two, they, you know, they hired Michael Cogswell, who passed away in, in April of 2020. And still, we're still kind of dealing with it because so much of what we do, so much of what I do was Michael's vision. He was hired in 91. He had the archives open in 94. They made him director of the house. He had the house open in 2003, and then um, he uh, his vision was to open up like a cultural center across the street from the house. And Michael, uh, unfortunately, you know, passed before completion. Construction is ongoing right now. We're hoping by the end of summer, early fall, the Louis Armstrong Center will be open to the public. It's going to be right across the street from the house, and uh, the archives uh, will still be part of the Queens College family. But all of that will be packed up, will be moved to the new building, will occupy the whole second floor. The first floor will have a permanent exhibit curated by Jason Moran. There's gonna be a 70 seat jazz room with concerts and lectures and film screenings and all that kind of stuff. And so that's happening and then in 2016 we got a call from Robert F Smith the world's wealthiest African American and he was a huge Armstrong fan and he gave us a 2.7 million dollar grant to digitize wow. the entire collection and so every scrapbook page every photograph every big band arrangement uh, all of it digitized which is just I can't even explain what what that means and so you know, you take any part out of that equation and I'm I'm not here right now and I'm not talking about this robust program, but you know, the whole relationship with you know, so the Armstrong Foundation, with Queens College, with our board, with our staff, getting the archives open, the house open, now the center open, um, it, it's really unbelievable. And there's nothing else like it, you know, in, in the jazz world. There's a few historic houses that are trying to get together. There's a, a couple of incredible archives, obviously, but we have the world's largest archives for a single jazz musician. And the bulk of it was compiled and curated by Louis Armstrong himself. So uh, you could hear me talking about it. I'm still in wonder uh, that it even happened this way. And, and to just be one in this long line. There's so many folks, Michael, Stanley Crouch, you know, Oscar Cohen, Phoebe Jacobs, uh, people from the college have, have all come and gone, passed away, left their mark. And uh, now it's up to us, you know. We're we're still telling the story and getting things done, even in the middle of a, a pandemic.
0: Well, again, oh. I, I can't wait to to visit the house, and uh, you know, hopefully, be able to visit you, uh, you know, while I'm there. Uh, let's let's switch over to the books for a second, and you know, it, it's kind of like, well, I want to start at the beginning, but you wrote these out of order, <laughs> so you know, we can't go chronologically because your first book. Well, let's start with that. I mean, you started with the the, the late years.
1: Correct. Yeah. Uh, those were the years that changed my life. So when I, when I was 15, I was born in 1980. So I turned 15 in September, 1995, and I was already interested in old stuff. I was listening to, you know, ragtime music and, you know, old vaudeville routines and watching black and white movies. I was just like, stuck in the past, and so I, I saw the Glenn Miller story, the old Jimmy Stewart movie, and Lewis comes out and does bass and street blues, I'm like, okay, I need to know more about this guy, and I went to the library, I checked out a cassette compilation, and it was all of the 1950s Columbia recordings, all the stuff produced by George Avakian, yet you know, Lewis plays Handy, Satch plays Fats, Ambassador Satch, and that cassette just changed everything, and you know, nothing had ever moved me that much, and I said, all right, I now need to listen to everything, hear everything and learn everything there is to know about this guy. And that's just how my brain was always wired. Anything I got into, you know, before that, it was Laurel and Hardy and it was Muhammad Ali. And it was, you know, something would come on my radar. Uh, I, I started watching the Looney Tunes when I was like six or seven. Next thing you know, I'm learning, you know, who who the directors were the writers here trek brown did the sound effects mel blank and carl stalling you know it's like it was just how i'm wired so i figured all right armstrong's gonna be the next guy on the list what i didn't expect was almost every book that i took out had the same narrative that this is a genius up until 1928 and then after 1928 he goes commercial he's a sellout Someone as far as saying he was an Uncle Tom and you know he coasted. He played the same solos every night and he was mugging and grinning and just kind of embarrassing himself and we'll always remember young Louis Armstrong, but we'll always, you know, treat this kind of as a cautionary tale. And I I would read this and wince and say, What what's going on here? And eventually I read you know, uh, Stanley Crouch and, and Dan Morganstern and Gary Giddens and, and other writers. And I saw that, you know, I wasn't alone in in loving later Lewis, but it just wasn't there in book form. So when I went to Rutgers and got that master's degree and they said, you know, you need to write a thesis. And I said, Lewis Armstrong's later years. And my mentor is the great historian, Lewis Porter, who's written in definitive books on Lester Young and John Coltrane. And he, and, you know, I could see in his face, he was like, you know, no one has really done anything on, on later Lewis. And so at college, I threw myself into it, you know, Rutgers, Newark was on the same campus as the Institute of Jazz Studies. Dan Morgenstern was still the director there. And then uh, I interviewed Jack Bradley and George Avakian. There were five surviving all-stars. I interviewed all of them. And I wanted to tell that story and uh, tell, you know, and once I got to, once I started going to the Armstrong archives, listening to these reel-to-reel tapes, hearing Armstrong angry, hearing him proud, hearing him boasting, hearing him telling jokes. You know, I started listening to all those tapes and I felt like I started to know him better than some family members because it's all there. It is just out there. He he, he kept that recorder on, didn't erase anything. And so that was the whole goal for the first book is I wanted folks to understand that this is an incredible story just as it is you know here's this guy that everybody was writing off and he's knocking the beatles off the charts and you know he just one hit after another uh people thinking that he kind of was creatively spent in the 20s but then he listened to lewis plays handy and satch plays fats and the musical autobiography and They think he's taking it easy, but you hear him challenging himself with Oscar Peterson and Dave Brubeck and Duke Ellington and, you know, with strings and orchestras and Oliver Nelson arrangements and, you know, never taking it easy for a minute. And, um, of course, the whole the race angle, the Uncle Tom stuff. I wanted to get into Little Rock. I wanted to get into his private feelings, how he dealt with segregation, how he refused to go back home to New Orleans, what he said after Bloody Sunday. And so. The book came out in 2011 and like i said you know i i don't take full credit you know i i, I put it in book form i'm very proud of that but i'm one in a long line of, of later armstrong uh lovers um but i do feel that it's the 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 old feelings and myths and kind of just you know everybody's taken those years for granted started to shift a little bit and in the last decade there's been a slew of reissues and unissued projects and you know box sets and digital releases, uh, all from that last 25 year period. And so I feel like um, Armstrong's post-1947 work is actually more respected. I meet young musicians all the time now, and the all-stars is actually their point of reference. They love the hot fives. They know how important that is. They love West End blues and everything. But the amount of musicians who've come up to me and talked about Ambassador Satch and Lewis Plays Handy, like today's Trummy Young's birthday. And there's musicians on social media younger than me posting about Lewis Plays WC Handy and Ambassador Satch. Listen to Trummy Young and Trummy and Lewis. And so I felt like, you know, that was what I set out to do. I did it. There's been this kind of reevaluation. I thought my work was done. It's obviously not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it, it, how was the reception to that book?
1: It was it was beyond my expectations because I knew, you know, it, it's funny, uh, because my personality is so I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I'm I'm non-confrontational for one thing. You know, I try to see the best in everybody, I try to be respectful and you know, I try to stay out of controversy. But when I write these things, I you know, I kind of take these. Stances. It's just like you know, like no, you know, these critics were wrong, and these musicians were wrong, and these listeners were wrong. And if you if you felt this way, you're wrong. I I did something at a lecture about five years ago. I improvised it, and it got such a big laugh. I threatened to fight the audience, fight anyone in the audience, if they disagreed with me by the end of the lecture. And it got a it got a huge laugh, and it was doubly funny because I don't think I've ever been in a fist fight in my life. <laughs> but I kept it. Uh, in the act, you could say, for a few years, because it was just so ridiculous. But then I would ask at the end of the lectures, I'm like, so, you know, who am I fighting now? You've spent an hour and a half with me and listening to Louis Armstrong, and, you know, no no one's taking me up on it yet.
0: <laughs> well, there are always naysayers, right? There's always going to be a critic or, or more. And you, I know, uh, especially after paying attention to the release of this latest book, you know I, and you've had a very interesting perspective on those it's almost like you embrace uh those critics and, and i you know i love the social media interplay and your comments you know here's what so and so said in this review and and in this review but you kind of just you know yeah, i don't know how I you mean, would do it otherwise you couldn't survive if you if you just let it get to you right
1: i don't want to sound like I don't want to sound like it's religion. <laughs> I also don't want to sound egotistical. So I have to watch my, my words. But I have lived with this now. And I've listened to every one of those reel-to-reel tapes. And I've been responsible for a lot of those reissues. I've heard all the session tapes. I've heard him playing with no chops. I've heard him rehearsing. You know, I've I've heard the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so... I feel like, you know, I'm so confident in my knowledge, you could say, of Armstrong. that You could have opinions. Opinions are fine. You know, you could say that, I, you know, I get what you're coming from with the 1950s, but I still prefer the 20s. That's great. I'm not going to fight you on that. You know, that, that's your opinion. But there are still folks who just insist on carrying over some of those things. You know, he played the same solo every night. Well then, you know, I'll get out my blog and I'll play you 15 versions of the same song with different solos and like, well, you know, answer that. <laughs> you know, or or you know, oh he, you know, he was, you know, the the African Americans, you know, left him in 1929 as his black audience. And then the new book, you know, I dug into the black press and it's just like, how do you respond? You know, I've done the research. And so, um, it's not that I'm looking for fights, but you know, I feel like um, like I said, you can still have your favorites and, and dismiss some stuff. Okay. But once they start hurling those, the same brick bats that have been hurled at them for 70 years, I'm, I'm ready to debate. I'm ready to fight back. Well, and it's using using his words and his music. That's, that's the key.
0: Well, And it's not just uh, tapes and, and uh, recordings and uh, any kind of documentation or other books, right? I mean, you actually went out and were able to talk to people that worked with him, people that, I knew him, you know, intimately in the sense that, you know, they were there for, for a lot of this stuff. I mean, so when you go to the horse's mouth, right, it's like, well, you know, they said, they told me that. So how yeah. do you argue with that?
1: I mean, that that's, that's the cornerstone of everything I do, um, because, you know, if you go back and read my Rutgers thesis, it's boring as hell, I can tell you that, because <laughs> yeah, I was just so happy to be finding re- research and reviews. And I just put it all out there, and there wasn't much connecting it, but I had these feelings. I, ha- You know, it was, it was Ricky Riccardi's feelings that Louis Armstrong was still great in the 50s, and he was tough on race, and he was this, and he was that, and then the very first time I went to the Louis Armstrong archives, which, no joke, Facebook reminded me was 15 years ago today i swear to god J- january 12 2006. Happy anniversary. I, yeah. <laughs> I can't that was just you know going as a spectator and i went to the archives i remember i got there at four o'clock they closed at five they said your time is limited i said i, I gotta hear one of these tapes i've heard so much about these tapes and they're like all right well here's our you know the catalog and they brought this fat binder and you know i'm i'm Trying to read the descriptions, I got as far as fourteen. I said, "Yeah, bring me tape fourteen. That sounds good." And it was a tape of Lewis in nineteen fifty-six. And I can't tell you how much I ended up quoting that tape in the book because it was all there. Lewis saying that that version of the All Stars was best, the best one he ever had. He was playing better than ever. He didn't care about styles. He didn't want to be pigeonholed. And once I heard that, and then once I started talking to the musicians, um, I, it was. Very easy to tune out the writers, and you know, when I wrote that first book, I was still kind of combating the other biographers. Like, you know, I would quote James Lincoln Collier, I would quote Gunther Schuller, and I would say, you know, this is what they wrote; they're wrong. <laughs> you know? uh, and so, when I wrote the new book, Heartful of Rhythm, I didn't consult any of the biographies. I wanted to be just contemporary research. I wanted to be just the musicians who were there just the writers who were there just armstrong who was there uh i didn't want to get any you know other perspectives or different readings or interpretations like let's go to the source you know these folks lived it they have not you know like when, when i interviewed danny barcelona the drummer i don't think anyone had really sat down with him I, I got like a two and a half hour oral history you know and he was with armstrong for 12 years and it's like how did you know nobody contact that guy. So mm-hmm. that's that's what I fall back on and as as often as I can using his own words, Armstrong's own words. Um because anybody's read both the books, you know, it's not hagiography. Hey, you know, I, you know, there he is cheating on wives and there he is, you know, um singing sleepy time. Yeah, yeah I I'm, I'm I'm happy to criticize him, but I always try to also include his perspective. So even when he does something That makes the reader disagree or is uncomfortable. At least you'll know where he's coming from. It's not just you know berating him for the sake of berating him, or you know he he disappointed my expectations. Now let's see where he was coming from. What was he thinking of in 1936 to make this choice? And then we can debate it after we still feel uncomfortable, but at least you know where he stands. That's that's my goal.
0: So um, if if you could talk to somebody who uh, knew him now what what kind of question would you ask and 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 maybe maybe I'm gonna invite somebody into the show right now um, and let's see <laughs> hi doc oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey Ricky's surprise This is a surprise. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Well, you know what? Um, Yeah. You know, that's that book that Doc is holding. uh, Ricky, that's the one you you autographed for him. And, uh, you know, I thought, man, we got to have we got to have somebody on who was there. Right. Because you never got to meet Armstrong. Man. There you go. So I mean, what uh, Doc? You know what I remember uh, talking to you. You told me you classified Louis Armstrong as maybe the most influential musician of the 20th century. Do you remember telling me that?
2: Hang on. It. I believed it then, and I believe oh. it now. And it's it. It would be very easy to have that go another way. Because as time passes, uh, a lot of things change. You have no control over. and uh, But Louie was Louie. I mean, big is big and Louis. Is Louis.
0: <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of want to... You know, Doc, if you if you've got questions for Ricky, or Ricky, if you've got questions for Doc, no, maybe no, no. about his perspective on the book, you know, I, I can just kind of step over in the corner and sip on some punch uh, for a couple of minutes. But uh, Doc, oh, maybe you, oh, you? what's your feed? Doc, what's your feedback on on Ricky's book that you've got there?
2: Um. Well, um, I was very conscious when I first got the book and and was reading it um that i wanted to have a a take on it and it first of all it's it's it just as a book it's it's beautifully written the rhythm is there uh the truth is there it's it's really a terrific book even if it's about i don't care who the book is about, but it's about the most famous jazz musician of all time. And I don't care, you know, other people might have a different opinion about that than than I have, but they're not trumpet players.
0: (laughs) Well put, well put. (laughs) Uh,
1: uh, uh Ricky, you got a you got a response to that? Hey, I, I, I don't I don't believe any of this is happening right now. <laughs> this is this is one of the great <laughs> moments. Thank you,
2: Doc. Even if I didn't like Trumpet and didn't like Louis Armstrong, I would if I I would enjoy this book because it's so beautifully done. Thank you. <laughs> you. You created something very special here.
0: Doc, I remember oh. you telling me that uh, as you were reading it, um, names would pop up. And, that, and you would remember either, and I'm not talking about just Joe Glazer, right, who is a manager that both you and, and Lewis shared. But mm. there were other names, musicians that you worked with through the years. And so this book was kind of, it was a great reminiscence for you too. Is that right?
2: Uh, that is true, yeah, a lot of the guys that uh, I work with in New York and jazz dates and and different things we did um uh, uh, they they traveled to Africa with louis and they told me all these great stories but um uh louis is uh i don't know he is the seminal. Number one jazz person of the the whole. And uh, I've often told guys in front, I got up in front of a band and we're going to do a concert someplace, like with this Show band. And I say, guys, just remember one thing Louis is going t- out there with us because if it weren't for Louis, we wouldn't be doing this concert and if it weren't for louis i'm not sure there would have been maybe you, there might have been jazz music but it wouldn't have been the same he he was uh, a powerful human being louis was and uh, you know he had such a great sense of humor and and just a, <laughs> a beautiful guy uh he's somebody you just like sit down and talk to. But um, without Louis Armstrong, there never would, but it would have been something called jazz concerts. And I'm not sure there would have been jazz rock recordings either.
0: Well, you know, Ricky, now, when you say that the way you responded that first time you heard a Louis Armstrong recording, you know. So, I mean, that was just uh, that was verified, right? That those feelings. I mean, he, he was that powerful of a musician,
1: right? Well, to be able to
0: capture people like like that. The,
1: the question I always ask people who were there because I, I was born too late. So, my my question for you, Doc, is how would you describe his sound in person,
2: Louis? Mm-hmm. Lou, Lou had his own sound. And it wasn't something that he said, well, if I do this little touch and every time I do that lick, then they'll know it's me. No. Louis Lou is Louie is jazz. He is jazz. And, of course, that, you know, you say the same in some ways about a lot of people on other instruments or like Duke Ellington, you know, Duke was Duke. But, but, um, Louis, um, I never forget what, and then this is talked about so much that I hate to mention it again, but in um when Louis uh, did that uh, recording in nineteen twenty five, um, <laughs> i mean he said he that that first of all that cadenza and then everything you did after that um that was the foundation jazz um not to say that some of the original stuff that came out of you know just guys playing on a street corner in in New Orleans yeah that happened and it would have happened but it wouldn't have had the effect he was he was the preacher yeah he was the father of jazz and he could talk about it he could do it he could sing it he could play it and uh, a lot of times I stood up in front of a big band going out to do a, a, a jazz concert, if you want to call it that, but I'd say, well, guys, just remember one thing. If Lou hadn't gotten out here and started all this, there would be no such thing as jazz and we wouldn't be doing a jazz concert. And then I've, I've said that to a lot of audiences before playing one of his tunes.
0: Well, Doc, obviously he influenced you tremendously, but everything that you have just said about Louis Armstrong has been said about you and and will be said about you.
1: All right. and you know, ricky,
0: ricky asks you know about what was his sound and you said it was lewis and i mean how many people say what is what does doc sound like well doc sounds like doc i mean it's like when you put on a recording of lewis armstrong there's no doubt now i i i'll be honest i couldn't tell you if it was the 20s I, i'm not a schooled in this i couldn't tell you if it was the 20s or the 60s i i could probably take a pretty good guess basically on the style but i would be able to tell you oh that's Louis Armstrong. <laughs> you
2: know, that's that's oh.
0: unmistakable.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. And I know this has been discussed so many times and uh about uh West End Blues. Yeah. Which he recorded in nineteen twenty five with, with that that uh the, well i don't know what word you use it was genius but um that recording and that cadenza on the front of that thing and and the, just the way he played the melodies afterward um that was what caused jazz to be that's what i think and it's not that, oh, I'm a trouble player, and I loved Louis, and I admired him, and all of that. Sure, but the truth is the truth. And and when he, when well, you wrote this book, man, you wrote the truth. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I thought I, I when I got the book. <laughs> I said, "Oh, that's nice. No, oh, that's a great picture, Louie. Yeah." And I opened it, and two days later, I said, "I gotta get. I gotta finish this book, or all I'm going to live, live my life." <laughs> I, oh, I I'm, hope you, I'm so glad you uh, can take it in what you did here, because uh, you know they're been a lot of archival kinds of books written about Lewis. But um, you captured everything. His childhood, the whole the whole kit and caboodle and how he grew up and um, things that happened. And you realize as you read along, wow. If there hadn't been if 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 Louis didn't get out there and do what he did, uh, the, the may, jazz may not have come into existence. It did. Well, it, it would, right. but it sure wouldn't be the same. He was, he was the king. He was the guy that says, "Okay, I'm going to show you this one more time, and you better <laughs> get it right."
0: Doc, uh, you know, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for, for being willing to come on. And while you're here, though, I want to say congratulations on your documentary that just came out. Yes. If, if people haven't seen that yet, yes. it is you've got to seek it out. And I know right now it's doing the like an independent film circuit uh, around the states, maybe around the world. But um, hopefully it's going to be where everybody can get an opportunity at some point to check that out. It is worth it is. It's not even a monetary thing. It's worth your your time to to sit and soak it in. So, thanks for for making that happen. I know you gave Nancy your uh, your daughter a, a big amount of uh, well Nancy, uh, credit for getting
2: that to happen. Nancy and and uh, the guy, you know, the mm-hmm. Kevin <clears throat> Kevin Wright. Uh, they made that happen. And uh, uh, when he, when Nancy called me up, and told me about it, I said, "Well, I have, I have to pay attention on this one." <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, well, it it was just it was terrific. And uh, um, again, thanks for thanks for coming in tonight. It's a treat to see you. You look great. Uh, like I told Kathy yesterday, I said you you're ninety three years young. You are truly. Uh, the definition of a the youngest ninety three year old I've ever
2: ever met. So uh, I wish you'd be around in the morning. <laughs> you could say that to me. Hey Doc, you're you're uh, something. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah.
0: So well, Doc, thank you. I'm if it's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up here with uh well, wait a with Ricky. What oh is? no, no. I, all right, you know what? No, Never stick, around. Stick, stick around, stick around. Okay, so here's <laughs> what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to get a, a different perspective on here. So uh, let's see, we'll play her, there we go. Now everybody's kind of got an equal, uh, equal viewing. Does that look different to you guys? Different layout? Yeah. Okay, good, I like that. So uh, Ricky, uh, back to you. <laughs> <laughs> And and I apologize if, if this was too much of a, of a surprise for you tonight, but I thought you know I thought you might appreciate.
1: No, this was this was a dream come true. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Doc. This well, listen, is my God. I can't wait to show this to my kids. Um,
2: when I when I got this book, and I, I I swear, I knew the minute I opened it up and, and started reading. I said, I ain't doing anything. Tell I'm through with this book. And then I may go back and check it out a second <laughs> time. And, and uh, I'm, you know, Louie and I had the same manager, Joe,
1: Joe Glazer. Yeah.
2: And, uh, so because I was just a, a guy trying to get, get started and, um, have the same manager that Louie had, uh, he gave me chances to to uh, take to, you know, if I'd be, do a concert in New York and in, in a club or something, uh, Louie would be in the audience, you know, uh, as a favor first of all to Joe Glazier. And uh, and secondly, he he and I got along great, and uh, I I swear to God, if if Louis hadn't come along, there may never have been a thing called American jazz music. What do you think, Ricky?
1: I I agree I agree, and to do it equally with the trumpet and the voice, that that's that's what always fractures me. I mean, you know, uh, the way he plays the trumpet influences trumpet players, piano players, saxophonists, guitarists, anybody, drummers. Uh, but then he sings. And all of a sudden, here comes Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. And for one guy to do all of that, it's it's overwhelming. You know, we're, I still think we're still not fully aware of that impact, but we're we're, we're getting there.
2: Well, your book is very important, and uh, I'm just going to say if if anybody thinks I'm just doing a commercial for your (laughs) book, they're wrong. This this I I literally could not stop till I read the whole book, and and, uh, and it. It, it supported so many things that I felt about Louis. I mean, because you're not just talking about Louis, the jazz trumpeter and, you know, who had this wild sounding voice and all, all, all of those wonderful things, but uh, uh, you, you read this and you say, what would have happened if Louis Armstrong hadn't come along when he did and did the things that he did, there who, who knows uh, what we'd be doing to entertain ourselves. Uh, and and you know, just, just to show you what a profound influence he was, um. I was doing an album and I wanted to have uh, sleep time down south in there and so th- it was with the band and uh, they uh whoever wrote the arrangement wrote it nicely and and the minute there's an intro and then a ba ba I lost control of the horns. I couldn't. I could no more play a Louis Armstrong piece without you know the his spirit coming through and being in every note that I played. Not that I played as good as he did, but it's it's uh, he he just got right inside of you and. Uh, I, I to this day, I can't play any one of his tunes that made him famous. And then I come along and play the tune, you know. And I, I, I find myself saying to myself, hey, self, get a look at this. You're, yeah, you're playing like you're doing an imitation of Louis Armstrong and and i didn't mean it that way but i mean for any trouble player to, to play ba 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 i mean you just you you have to do it you know it's he owns he, he owns every piece I've found my friend Buck, on Blueberry Hill. Yes,
0: Lord. Doc. When when you uh, when you were around Lewis, and did did you ever get a sense? And you can think about it in terms of stardom these days. Was he a superstar in the public eye? Or was it? Was that something that you think came along later? And Ricky, I, I'm sure you could speak to that too. But did he have that superstar status when when you met him and and started uh, associating with him? You
2: you dad asking that? Yes, me? yes, Doc. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, yeah. He it is it isn't that he was. A, an inspiration to other trumpet players or, it, or anything. It's uh, he he took over the world of jazz and it. I think that we were at a turning point when Lewis came along where if Louis came along and started playing his style and his being who he was and and it 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 went like that otherwise it could have gone like that and i don't know what jazz would have been but but it it i, I don't think it would have been uh it wouldn't have been the same that's for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know what was wonderful about him is that he you, you, you forgot immediately about his trumpet playing or his singing. When you met Louis, that oh boy, what a what an inspiration he was. And, and what a lovely human being, God. just one of the all-time greats. And I, I you know people reach that kind of stature every now and then you're gonna ask now oh, louis armstrong or or this guy or that guy yeah no, know uh not with Louis. <laughs> he he was he created he did everything to create the big band sound and uh in, in the small group sounds, and t- to know him was was a thrill.
0: Doc, do you have a favorite era of Louis Armstrong? Are you are you a fan of uh, the the twenties well, or or later? No,
2: not really. Uh, I, I like every, everything he played. <laughs>
0: Oh, okay. So, everything. You're going to take the easy way out and say, I like all of it.
2: And and don't forget his vocalizing. Because when he played the trumpet, he was, it was his voice was coming through. It was his, when he he talked song and played it, he then owned it. And uh, God, if you were a trumpet player and you wanted to play, I found my thrill. You like you couldn't say, I found my thrill. <laughs> I found my thrill. Yes. <laughs> you know that he, he didn't. His song didn't come over you; it came into you. And and then uh it, it to me it's 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 impossible to play anything on a trumpet that Louis has played first. <laughs> <laughs> like Louis played it.
0: Ricky, uh in your writing both of these books and, and all this other research, do you find uh can you think of uh, corroborative things. I mean, Doc's talking about this. Do you do you think? Oh yeah, I remember so and so telling me that, or witnessing this or that. Is this is this bringing anything together?
1: Oh, totally. Um, I mean, the one thing you know, I've interviewed now, I don't know, nine or ten, mm-hmm. including Doc. You can say <laughs> I've been in the same room. Um, um, I don't know, 10, 15, I don't. Know. Whenever I meet people who spent a minute with Louis Armstrong or were in his band. I just want to soak it all in. And um, Terry Teachout is a friend. And he wrote a great book on Armstrong called Pop. So we we once compared notes. Everybody I've talked to and everybody he talked to, if they met Louis Armstrong, they didn't have a negative word to say about him. And that is so rare because usually you could find somebody who was like, well, you know, what you see is not what you get, and off stage he was kind of sour, and you know he he cheated me out of money, or it's just it's it's not possible, and you know I'm not saying he was a saint, but he's he's close. <laughs> well, he's human, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So, <laughs> wow.
0: Well, you know, I I think about
2: uh, it, there's things that love to tell you about Louis. That I can't tell you. <laughs> well, I can't go. I can't go into the story. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but
0: uh, well, he we'll was, we'll have to make an arrangement for another uh, another uh, session.
2: Yeah, <laughs> we a yeah, closed a closed session.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: Well, uh, you, you if if I were a trumpet player and. A worshipper of Louis Armstrong, I still would have enjoyed the book. You're a hell of a good writer. You, you, thank you, you, thank had you. Lewis beat. You had his tempos on everything.
1: <laughs> thank you. Well, ne- needless to say, if if you're ever back in New York when this whole thing is is over, we have. His trumpets are ready for you. His mouthpieces are ready for you. We have his whole big band book if you need an arrangement. If you want to see the house again, we have photos. We have photos of you with Lewis at, at the Tonight Show. Lewis going to see your band in 1970, I think, at the Rainbow Room, I want to say. Um,
2: yes. We've got it all.
1: So let, let's, let's yeah. see. Well,
2: we have the same manager, Joe Pizer.
1: Right. And...
2: Uh, as busy as louis was and, and 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 as unimportant as i was uh he he would still come you know i um, i know Lou. uh joe would probably put it put a bug in his ear hey uh the kid is playing at the so-and-so what do you think let's go by and see him <laughs> oh but there are stories I'd love to tell you right now
0: well it, I, I've got to keep this at least pg13
2: yeah. so. oh, 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 wait a minute could I could I just tell us one story and then you us three will and kathy will will have it. And then you can cut it out of the thing.
0: Well, we're we're live, so how about this? How about I give a no, how, it, how it. about I give a, a warning to uh, any listeners out there if, if you know if, if you no, want no something
2: okay oh, no, 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 no no
0: okay all
2: right uh,
0: well what a great teaser holy cow I mean that's that's gonna that's a cliffhanger if I've ever heard a cliffhanger right <laughs> people are gonna
2: have to find a way to
0: to come back and find out what.
2: What Was he going to well, tell? So, know, I Louis came to see me. Pl- I'm not going to tell the whole story, but he came to see me, uh, playing at a place in New York, I forgot where it was. But one of, one of the really good places to play, and I had a sore on my lip. And Louis, hey, pops, what's happening, baby? Come on over here, and um. And I said, oh, Louis Christ, I got a to play tonight. And look what I got. Oh, shit, man, there was nothing about that. And then he had a cure for it. No. <laughs> that, that cannot be... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So after we're done here, we'll have to stay on and uh, finish. Doc, I've heard the story. So we, I know we're going to have to stop right there. (laughs) (laughs) So let
2: me, let me ask you you this. Let me, let me. You know what, where I'm going. I,
0: yes, I absolutely know where you're headed with that. Um, uh, uh, Ricky, I want to ask you uh, uh, you know you've you've covered a significant portion of Lewis's uh, musical career. Do you have do you have the the energy, the drive to to do a third or fourth or fifth book and and keep going back into the the beginning of that career?
1: This I don't have anything official to announce, but i'm 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 happy to say I am working on Book three right now. Um Oxford University Press, my the publisher of Heartful of Rhythm, they've been wonderful to work with and they're they're very happy with it. And so they reached out to me and they asked me the same question, you know. So I I submitted a proposal on December 1st, and any free time I've had in the last month, I've already started uh getting you know sources together and stuff, but the, the third book would cover his birth 1901 right up until 1928, and then that will complete the trilogy. And uh, then I can move on. Um, it's a funny thing because you know, these are the years that everybody agrees are you know perfection, you know, West End blues and and everything else. Uh, and so because of that, I, I've i never been that excited to write about him because I figured well, everybody knows that's great, you know, I, I want to. Shine the light on the big bands, shine the light on the all-stars. But in recent years, uh some different sources have turned up. You know, um uh an interview with Lewis's sister, Mama Lucy, and um, you know, Lil Hardin's uh autobiograph uh autobiographical manuscript. The first few chapters surfaced two years ago. Um, there's Lewis's manuscript for his autobiography, and plus I've heard all the tapes and scrapbooks and all that stuff. So I know there's enough fresh material and I have my own, you know, perspective, my own way of connecting things that now I know, you know, it feels unfinished. And I feel like certain things that I hinted at in book, the first book I wrote won't make sense until this book comes out. And um, the main goal is just to show that there's a tremendous consistency in Armstrong's life, in his work, in his art, his values. You know, he didn't get hung up on styles and and this kind of thing. You know, he was always himself, no matter the settings and um, what he was doing in those early years. You know, playing pop songs and listening to Guy Lombardo and, you know, all that kind of stuff. um, It is reflected back in the work that he does in the 40s, 50s and 60s. It's all the same guy, you know, at every point in his career. He's the same guy. So a long-winded answer of saying it's going to happen. So stay tuned for the official announcement, and I just have to research it and write it. But you know, we'll we'll meet again in about three years, and I'll be (laughs) I'll be good to go.
0: Well, you certainly don't lack the passion uh, for for your subject. I mean, and and Doc is right. You know, and like I told you at the beginning, it's not just that when I read it, it's an easy read. I, I hear your voice when i read it and you know that really does lend a, a great deal to the the pacing of, the, of reading the book but uh yeah very well written and congratulations on two really really fine books uh, it makes Thank me curious you. to see you know were your blogs that you referred to earlier were they were they as good as this
1: well there there's there's over 600 of them going back to 2007 and they're a lot more informal. And, uh, you know, like I did one about I remember Lewis and Sydney Bechet locking horns on cakewalking babies from home. And I framed the whole thing out like a boxing match. And, you know, so they're they're a lot of fun, I think. Uh, but, you know, th- those are the places you can go where I take like one Armstrong solo, like back home again in Indiana or strutting with some barbecue and i analyze every surviving version so you can see you know when he changes the solos you know how he approaches him when his chops are down you know big band versions, small group versions. so there's there's a lot to unpack there as i used to knock out about 50 60 entries a year and now it's down to like i don't know (laughs) if i can get 10 or 15 out i'm i'm doing all right uh, they're all there the uh, dippermouth.blogspot.com that's that's the website the wonderful world of lewis armstrong and like i said 600 entries going back 14 years so there's plenty of plenty of ground to cover
0: that that's terrific you know um and, and thank you for mentioning that website and i'll have to make sure uh to get that from you again i'll include that you know when i put this out uh on the youtube channel by the way this this will come out uh tomorrow uh, the video will go up on the Studio HFL YouTube channel. The audio will go on uh, SoundCloud, and it'll be out on the, all the on the podcast uh, platforms. Um, so, hang on one second. I'm just going to do a little commercial for the rest of the week here. So, if if you guys out there are listening, uh, thanks for being here tonight. And I know there are people out there, but uh, tomorrow night, Peter Pickett and Eric Mureen from Pickett Blackburn. Uh, Wiff Rudd is Thursday night. He's going to be talking about his new book, Side by Side. Uh, Carl Hammond of Hammond Design, you know the mouthpiece genius that he is, is going to be here Friday night. And then uh, David Messina and Erica Howard of uh, Messina Covers, uh, which is going to be a really great conversation. You know, an insight into a part of our industry we don't really maybe know a whole lot about. So, uh, hope everybody will show up for those. But again, all of this is going to be available again uh, on all the social media. So, um, doc, don't go anywhere. All right. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap things up. Ricky, don't go anywhere. We're going to stay on for a little bit, but, uh, I want to, again, tell everybody, thank you for coming tonight. Thanks for uh, supporting this and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Oh, David Wolf, one of my, one of my students, one of my former students is now a good friend. Not that those have to be exclusive, right? Uh, David, uh, Posted in the notes, uh, dippermouth.blogspot.com. Thank you, David, for doing that. appreciate that. Uh, and by the way, Brenda Clark, uh, Doc, you remember Brenda uh, here in Indianapolis? She's She's been watching. So, Brenda, thank you for being here. I appreciate that. And uh, and Welcome. Jenny. Jenny's been watching, too. Hey, you remember uh, my wife, the one who made you. What kind of pie did she make for you that you just? Pumpkin, was it a, pumpkin pie.
2: Yeah, and, uh, and, and uh, my dear friend there with the Dodge Charger.
0: Oh, yeah, Brenda. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't know if she's driving it all that fast these days. but uh, Well, um, again, thanks, everybody, for being here. Uh, hopefully I'll see everybody tomorrow night. And for right now, uh, on because, behalf of the
2: Can I just do one more commercial? About absolutely. This- I'm not
0: going to cut you off, Doc. Keep going.
2: Well, no, it's like this. Uh, if you want to know what Louis was really like as a person, not as a trumpet player, but as a person, this this book is uh, it lets you get a look in into him as a human being, and uh, it isn't all just well, if you're a trumpet player, you'll enjoy the book. No, you. Uh, it's it's just uh, and um, it it does a lot to uh, shine a, a good light on uh, the relationship between races in this. If you know Louie, you like his book, and you read it. Um, it may change your life <laughs> if, if if you haven't opened yourself up to it before. And um, oh man, I don't know. It's just, it's just it's just I I just sat down to and and started reading the book all over again today. I I could read this book uh, five times a year. It's, I swear to God, I really okay. could,
0: Ricky. There's but, there's your endorsement of the yeah. year right there. <laughs> tell me about. Tell you
2: about it. one one other thing here. Uh, w- there was a guy in Portland, Oregon, where I got my first professional go-around. Uh, named Monty Ballou. By oh, sure. Who was yep. a banjo player and also. Uh, a uh, guitar player and a just a hell of a character and he was really a, gro- a great friend of louis it went when louis would come to portland it wasn't always too easy to find a place to play where he was going to be welcomed and feel feel good you know and uh, so he always stayed with uh, Monty Blue, and w- Monty Blue and I were in a big band playing uh, at the Paramount Theater in Portland, and Monty said, "Hey man, uh, I I want you to come out to my house with me." I said, "Well, yeah." When he says, "Now," I said, "Well, we've got another show, two more shows to do." He says, "Oh, don't worry about that, man." So we go out to his house, he had a, a, a large like living room and he had every- he was one record short of having every single recording that Louie ever made. And Louie would stay at Monty's house, oh yeah, that's the time that Lil was shooting, getting on me, man. Uh, and, um, so, uh, he, he says, I'm going to tell you the story of Louis Armstrong. And he did it. He would play a record and talk about it. And, uh, if, if, it it, it it became almost impossible to play any one of Louis songs like, uh, strutting with some barbecue, uh, uh, without people say man that that guy's he's doing a real good invitation of louis uh and i'm not i'm (laughs) once you met louis man it, it he got into your bloodstream into your brain and um and yet he was a sweetheart of a person he was never not a nice guy he was uh, a lovely human being and he, uh, he well just had a couple of nice experiences with him and uh anyway i'm um, thanks for letting me have a chance to talk about Lou a little bit absolutely I will- I'd love to tell you that one story.
0: Well, I tell you what, hang hang tight. Hang tight. Don't you go anywhere. Ricky, don't go anywhere. Um I, I am gonna I nope. am gonna say uh an official sign off. We're gonna we're gonna stop being live here in a second. Thanks everybody for joining us tonight. Stay healthy. Hopefully we'll see everybody on the other side of this pandemic. And uh, look forward to seeing you guys tomorrow night. Uh back here at eight o'clock Eastern with Peter Pickett and Eric Marine. So for now, Larry Powell studio hfl signing off have a good night and unfortunately that's where today's interview ends and with most interviews i i would have and with most (laughs) with most interviews i would have excerpted one or more significant stories and made those available exclusively for my patreon patrons in this case this was the full interview i didn't take anything out but regularly I will take something out as a benefit specifically for those Patreon patrons. Again, you can find out how to become a patron at patreon.com slash studio And to my current patrons, again, thank you very much for your support. Another reminder to visit Apple podcast and to leave both a star rating and a review, and please visit the studio HFL YouTube channel and subscribe. That's, it for today. This has been a production of Powell Music. Yes, that's me, Larry Powell, of course. I am the chef, sous-chef, and dishwasher here at Studio HFL. And again, the show is supported by the generosity of Messina Covers, Eastman Winds, S.E. Shires, and Pickett Blackburn. I'm grateful that you spent one of the most valuable commodities you have, your time. I'm grateful that you spent your time here today listening or watching this interview. And I encourage you to check out some of the previous interviews. there, And there's a lot of great ones coming up in the very near future. Um, but until next time, I wish you good health. And that's it. Take care.